0: Caroline Goldman, Episode 2 A Criticism of Positive Education. Hi, I'm Caroline Goldman, and I'm a psychologist for children and teenagers based in Paris. I published several books and have been teaching for more than five years in college. This podcast is about informing parents or any stakeholder involved in the well being of children. everyone. This second podcast will entirely consist of a fairly detailed critique of positive education. It will not include any proposals for educational solutions. I'll be giving my own personal advice in the next episode, the third, which will be called setting educational boundaries. Positive education has recently emerged as one of the schools of thoughts designed to help parents with their questions around education. The messages delivered by this trend are, on the whole, pretty healthy, since they rightly encourage parents to show love for their children, something that psychoanalysis has been encouraging since the beginning of the 20th century. But I think there are several mistakes with this trend, and I'm going to talk about them. The first mistake is to mix up the need for love and the need for educational boundaries, i.e. learning to cope with frustration. This school of thought considers that any cry, any tension, any oppositional movement or demand on the part of the child is an indicator of a call for reassurance of the love of their parents. It is true that a depressed child whose parents are absent or unavailable or who are themselves suffering, for example, may indeed call out for the attention and tenderness of adults through crying and disruptive behavior. But the child who is doing well with present and loving parents will at some point in their development, generally from the age of one, always call out for educational boundaries. In other words, they're saying, mommy and daddy, help me to calm down. I don't know how to do it. I'm too little and I'll never be able to do it on my own. Crying out to be loved and crying out for boundaries are not at all the same thing. A small child crying because they've fallen off their bikes needs to be comforted. A child who has lost their father in a war needs to be comforted. A child who has been humiliated by a derogatory remark made by an adult needs to be comforted. But if a child who has otherwise been blessed in life and who is much loved by their parents, a throwing lasagna at his six-month-old sister for the pleasure of making her cry, they're calling out for educational boundaries. If that same child approaches a hot oven or runs at the wheels of a car when their parents have told them 120 times that it's dangerous or forbidden, again, they need educational boundaries. But this earthly common sense has been shattered by the impetus of positive education. All of a sudden, the slightest childhood dissatisfaction has become indicative of a cruel lack of love. Camus famously said, To name things badly is to bring unhappiness to the world. There is a lot of pressure, then, on parents, who then, logically, can only patiently absorb this disobedience and disturbances, let them build, and then feel appealingly guilty for trying to contain them. Let's continue to clarify this fascinating matter. First, let's talk about love. At the start of a baby's life, that's all there is. Love. This parental love is expressed through the sharing of successful sensory experiences kisses, cuddles, nourishing milk, feedings, warm baths, lullabies, etc. But also through experiences of attachment, laughter, their growing awareness, explanations, and so on. The positive education movement talks about all this very well. Well, it says the same thing as Françoise Dolto did 60 years ago, but we're not going to complain about the repetition of these messages praising the virtues of tenderness towards young children because it's not insignificant in building their foundations. This parental love nourishes the child emotionally in a wonderful and necessary way, but it also animates the child and excites them. It is to be the source of all their vital resources. The parents love the child, who will in turn love life and the world with the same intense drive. Then, the question of boundaries gradually comes into play from the age of one because their new mother freedom gives them more power to act. Parents realize that this vitality will gradually have to be given a civilized framework so that it doesn't spill over and endanger themselves or others. From the age of one, therefore... Education will have to continue to distill lots of love, but also gradually teach the child to contain themselves and put up with life's normal little frustrations because everything that concerns the inner world, thoughts or impulses should not be broadcast outside. Knowing how to repress the expression of their inner world is just as fundamental as their own characteristics. Well-set boundaries, airtight, solid and changing limits, give children a sense of security are their social foundations and a large part of their relational charm. This also enables them to exploit all the riches of their personality, which has been forged by love. Because no matter how many qualities you have, if you don't have access to the codes of good manners and consideration for others, these qualities will never find a way of exploiting their potential. I'm thinking of those people who express a good idea by shouting and who, as a result, you don't really want to hear or these intelligent but cheeky pupils who never win the teacher's affection, those potentially wonderful lovers who will never know how to seduce, or those gifted artists who are lazy about working and will never produce anything. People's qualities are in everything. And as you get older, I think you realize how important a sense of effort and diplomatic skills are in getting where you want to be. Children yearn for boundaries. They let us know this by calling out for them repeatedly, more and more insistently until they receive them. This quest can sometimes last a lifetime. Adults who have problems with educational boundaries have the same desires as everyone else. They dream of love, self-worth, possession of possessions, power to which they later add sexuality and money. Only they don't just dream about them. They act on these desires without filters or breaks. They don't remain in the state of an inner fantasy or a project to be built upon gradually. There is no medium or a long term. These adults want everything right now. They can't hold back. They can't pull it off. The surge of desire, the impulse, the drive always seems to be open, ready to make their demands and so tirelessly call for an external constraint that does not come because it should have been set in childhood by education and gradually integrated into psychic functioning. Not having any educational boundaries is a freedom that turns into a nightmare. This confusion between the search for love and the call for educational boundaries has therefore been the first confusion offered by positive education. I now come to the second, which concerns the denial of aggression. Positive education believes that boundaries will integrate themselves through love by identifying with the tenderness of parents, It therefore considers that children's impulses will forever remain those of a baby between 0 and 10-month-old, yearning only for care, cuddles, and the desire to share. The child is therefore perceived as a depersonalized being. But then, so must their parents. This trend also rejects any idea of parental sanction. The very idea of punishment is systematically aligned with educational violence. There is no distinction between daily beatings inflicted in an anarchic, cruel, humiliating and unfair manner and a simple disapproving parental look after the child has, for example, thrown their plate on the floor for no obvious reason, knowing the rules perfectly well. So, in a justified context after a deliberate act of disobedience that makes sense to the child. Even in this case, sanctions are unthinkable in positive education. Catherine Gigan, a leading figure in this movement in France, wrote in 2015 that in her eyes, educational violence does not only consist in the use of punishment, it consists in using physical or psychological coercion to obtain or try to obtain a result from a child, either something to do or not do, something to say or not say, or an attitude to adopt or not adopt, end quote. The parents reading this extract therefore find themselves restricted when faced with the temptation, however difficult to avoid, to force their child to say hello to their grandparents, to shout less loudly at the local swimming pool, or to do their homework or clean the table. These educational constraints are being recharacterized by the author as violence inflicted on the child. Isabel Fioza, another leading figure of this movement, stated in a 2019 conference that, and I quote, "I don't believe those who say you have to set limits for children." It extinguishes their joy. If we set a limit, our own stress system is activated. We we'll trigger the same stress system in those on whom a limit is set. Immobility, flight, immobility. End quote. According to the positive education approach, there is no such thing as a child's aggressive instincts and parents must never respond to them with anything even remotely aggressive themselves. To sell this sanitized conception of psychological life to the general public, she has created an impressive sleight of hand that consists of purely and simply denying the existence of aggression. Isabel Fiusa explains that there is no such thing as a fit of rage. No, that there are only children who generously share their emotional storms with us. A sign of vitality that should actually delight us. In a TV program, she even said that anger discharge is not anger, it's just discharge. She confides that when she slapped her own mother at the age of 13, she acted out of a simple reflex and not out of aggression. Like when a child screams to get a packet of sweets from the supermarket stand. It's not because they really want it, but because they're clinging to a known reference point. Apparently, the parent accompanying them is not a sufficient reference point in this case. Dr. Patrick Bensouzan, a seasoned child psychiatrist, wrote of this extract, I am appalled. First of all, I'm appalled by the mess of rubbish on offer there. But how can anyone give out so much false information? Is not one tempted to check? End quote. What worries me is that the representatives of this trend are never psychologists or child psychiatrists working in child psychiatry. Their training may come close to treatment, but they don't know what they're talking about and use concepts crudely. It's clear that they have no mastery of psychopathology and confuse concepts. Isabel Fioza has a foundational master's in psychology, but she didn't go on to qualify as a psychologist with a full master's. Catherine Gagan is a pediatrician, which is very different from psychiatry. The influencer, Mr. Papa Positive, is just a dad. And Isabel Fioza has been training parental coaches for years. She promises to provide the skills needed to start a professional coaching business with families, following a 32-day training course with the results you can only imagine. All these people with no academic qualification are giving advice to the media and households, which in turn is having major consequences for public health. Behavioral disorders have been exploding in child psychiatry for six to seven years, and many heads of departments have been trying to denounce this exponential phenomenon. Professors Marcelli, Duverger, and Ruffo, Goles, and Kuhn have all published on this subject since 2018. Catherine Gigant sets out her very personal definition of a fulfilled childhood. Children express their emotions loudly, laughing loudly and crying as soon as they're upset. They are not reasonable. All these characteristics inherent in small children disturb many adults. They have to be well-behaved, not move around, sit quietly, obey orders, be clean and tidy, eat what they are given, and go to bed at the appointed time without complaint. In short, she adds... They must no longer be a child. This image of the child as a tyrant, the danger of a domineering child, is nonsense because it is the adult who has all the instruments of power and who too often uses them easily or abusively to subdue the child, make them obedient, force them to do as the adults want and when they want, end quote. All parents reading those incredible passages will therefore have to deduce that a well-behaved child is a broken child and that child tyranny does not exist, thus brushing aside both their potential daily experience. I see such children every day in my practice, so I know they exist, and a whole reality described by child psychology in numerous works. You can see two parallel worlds taking shape. The world of the real therapists working in the field who recognize the inherent aggression of the human psyche, which they are confronted with every day in a serious way in their consultations. And, on the other hand, this wonderful world presented by self-proclaimed specialists, who are, in reality, great marketing aces who can transform psychic phenomena into beautiful pictures, but whose many denials of reality are once again, not insignificant in terms of the impact on the families who listen to them. On this subject, I strongly advise you to refer to deeply moving and representative account given by blogger Madame Capitaine, who wrote a post entitled Alienation of Mothers 2.0 about her descent into hell with her eldest son due to the overwhelming principles of orthodox positive education. She felt that everything was her fault and nothing she did was right for her child. She slipped so far into shame that she contemplated suicide. Positive parenting pretends to believe that hatred and ambivalence don't exist, writes Professor Goles, head of the child psychiatric department at Necker, a Paris children's hospital. The extraordinary psychologist Claude Almos, which whom you're no doubt familiar with, points out that negative emotions such as anger, frustration and fear do have a role to play. Quote, There is nothing malicious about conflict. Parents need to regain their self-confidence, bearing in mind that a child who is loved knows it deeply. They never confuse an abusive parent with one in a bad mood. End quote. And yes, I agree with her. As I said earlier, love and boundaries are two completely different structural areas, just like eating and sleeping. No one would dream of mixing the two. Yet, it's through cuddling that this trend encourages us to respond to children's desires for educational boundaries. Positive education says that it is at times of a positional crisis that parents should show their children affection. This idea is really far-fetched. Once again, it's like being asked if you ate enough fruits during the night. Why at this precise moment? What shouldn't we be able to offer our child proof of love the rest of the time You know, uh, 23 hours out of 24, when they're not pulling their brother's hair, throwing their plate on the floor, screaming because their sister has orange juice in their glass, that's one millimeter more than theirs. I always present family life to parents in this way Everyday life with children consists of walking in paradise with them, but with a fire extinguisher on your shoulder. Add the ready. Take a walk in paradise with them. Make the most out of every moment to be happy together. Eat chocolate, make fun of each other, make fun of the world, dance like crazy, sing with joy, eat cheese fondue in August, swimming in the sea in December, cuddling endlessly. In short, have fun and enjoy life as much as possible. But when your child gets out of hands and interferes with the comfort of others, pull out the fire extinguisher and set the limit that they need. How do you do that, you may ask? Well, you'll find out in detail in the next episode titled Setting Educational Boundaries. Genuine child psychology therefore has no trouble admitting this less-than-stellar, impulsive reality of children's psychic lives. It is not set out to deny it. Its aim is to get children to use this energy by redirectioning it in other directions to enrich their personality. I'll be talking all about this in another podcast devoted to the virtues of humor and laughter in education. Now we come to the third confusing aspect of positive education, which in my opinion is... The Negation of Generational Differences A few years ago, cartoonist Fanny Vela depicted adults in children's situation: adults being scolded, told to get out of the bath, share a toy or kiss a visitor goodbye. The aim of these drawings was to put the demands made on children into perspective, showing that no adult would tolerate them in their place. So some of them delivered the right messages, for example, never let an infant cry in bed without coming to comfort it or hit a child while demanding that they do not hit others, never force them to finish their plate or punish them for a bad mark, etc. But others, absolutely fancifully, suggested that children and adults were at the same stage of maturity and that, as such any parental authority was tantamount to abusive authority. For example, there's a man punished in his bedroom by his wife because she has received a call from his employer who was dissatisfied with his professional results. Or another forced by his wife to lend his car to a stranger on the pretext that he had to be nice. Another summoned to get out of the bath, forced to let himself be kissed and caressed on the cheek by two women in a shop, and so on. But to say this is to deny the reality of a child who, by definition, is not yet constructed. That's why we have to educate them. For Daniel Kuhn, head of department, making children partners in their own education is itself an invisible violence caused by positive education. Not recognizing a child's immaturity and dependence is tantamount to inflicting violence on them. Just because an adult has power over a child does not mean that power has been abused. Dr. Ducmar Marwood, a doctor specialized in family abuse, writes that there is a confusion here between recognizing rights and saying that a child has the knowledge and thinking skills of an adult. The child must be able to rely on the adult protector. Violence is also applied when we think that a child is an adult like any other. Sometimes we have to use authority because the child lacks certain powers of discernment. All the professionals in the field are talking about the risk of violence associated with the ideological application of this trend, which is supposed to be trying to remove it from the parent-child bond. Kuhn writes that the liberation of children is nothing more whose realization leads the child to the worse. It's not a question of subjugating the child to the adult, but of initiating the child into the law. It's a necessity. And although they deny it, These theories make the bed of the child king driven mad by the power given to them and of which they do not know what to do because they do not have, structurally, the aptitude to make use of it. You can see the irony of inviting a violence that we didn't want to let in through the back door or through the window. My fourth criticism of positive education concerns the limits of its practical applications. This is because it is, above all, an ideology, a way of looking at parenthood, a way of combating the educational violence of the past and that of the world in general. As a result, it condenses all forms of parental repression by spelling out what not to do. Isabelle Figozat, for example, explains that when a child hits you, you should never tell them not to hit you because they will hear an invitation to do so. The same goes for encouraging them to stop crying. We're not really sure what these ideas come from, but positive education is not very first when it comes to advising parents on how to replace these bad reflexes. When faced with a tantrum, FUSA nevertheless advises parents to hug the child, give them a glass of water, run or jump with them. This will certainly work to calm a depressed, polytraumatized child, but certainly not a normal, psychologically healthy child who needs a daily opportunity to learn about boundaries. Or, it may be a one-off, completely superficial lull. I sometimes meet children whose parents have taken the soothe with a cuddle solution literally. These children then have a great difficulty containing themselves when faced with frustration without cuddles or dummies, even at a very advanced age, which obviously causes problems in the wider community. I remember one child who systematically demanded a cuddle just after pushing another child down the stairs. You can't imagine the teacher's face. I had to wean these little patients off this totally incongruous association between disobedience and regressive cuddling in order to reconnect them with the social codes of the real world. Worst still, so-called positive parenting often encourages parents to make their children bear the emotional consequences of their actions on their own well-being. For example, you're making mommy very sad or daddy can't stand you anymore, he wants to hit you. I found this idea very worrying. Not only does it not make children behave, it also risks plunging them into a tyranny of feelings that will be a source of great anxiety for them. For example, Mommy makes me sad because she forbids me to pull my sisters hair. I make my mommy sad by my violent reaction to her forbidding me to do so, etc. It also risks plunging them into immense guilt because a child has no psychological way of escaping the shame of having harmed the well-being of those they love. It is a real torture for them to know that they've made their parents sad and to have disappointed them because they love their parents. The best thing is that they do not have access to such a disturbing power. Here comes my fifth and final critical comment on all of this. I see a market in positive education based on the crude use of neuroscientific data to make people feel guilty. (laughs) Guilt tripping is the driving force behind this business. Claude Halmus says that positive education presents a watered-down version of life for marketing purposes. Parents' guilt becomes a market. They are preying on the sentiment always ready to be aroused in order to sell parenting books and courses. This movement is part of the wider personal development market. Sociologist Eva Illouz, in her book Epicracy was right to denounce these apostles of happiness, who, according to her, make a considerable amount of money from their activities. I was talking earlier about Isabelle Fioza's parenting coach training courses, I saw one of them being advertised at the cost of more than 13,000 euros, payable in 31 monthly installments. On the subject of the neuroscientific proof, so often brandished as scientific credence by this movement, neuropsychologist Leonard Vanodzel explains that the idea that neuroscience validates or invalidates an educational method or technique is generally an illusion, sometimes a fashion statement, often a marketing slogan they must always be cross-referenced with other disciplines. Dr. Ben-Souzon condemns the attraction of the lay public to neuroscientific concepts. He explains that this makes it easier for non-experts to accept theories that are sometimes based on misinterpretations of research results and contribute to the propagation of false theories known as neuromyths, He says that the community of positive parents is particularly adept at this thanks, in particular, to social networks which have been an extraordinary propagator of data that is indistinguishable between lies and truth. He goes on to say that we found verified information braided together with totally fabricated and far-fetched information. Some is shared without being evaluated, encouraging the widespread dissemination of errors or lies. On this subject, I can only recommend Marie Chetrit's wonderful book, Positive Education, A Question of Balance. She's an academic, a scientific, and decided to delve into the neuroscientific arguments of positive education. She was not disappointed and discovered problems at every level. First, in the absolutely unclear definition of what is and what is not educational violence. Forcing your child to go to the dentist is not the same as locking them in a cupboard for hours. Secondly, in the confusion between chronic stress, acute stress, amygdala, and cortisol, often mixed up. Third, about the results of research on baby mice, which were a bit too quickly associated with human babies. And finally, about the imprecision of the age of children under stress. Being 2 days old and 10 years old are not the same thing. She deconstructs through these abusive interpretations point by point and makes you realize just how ideological and non-scientific the whole edifice is. And that's it! In the next episode, I'll be giving you my magic recipe for setting educational boundaries for children over the age of one in a respectful, non-violent, but at least effective way. Because our children expect it from us.